pray. God, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for taking us. Um, The church is your bride. And not forsaking us. And uh, thank you for your righteousness and your word that we're about ready to get into this morning. Pray that you would calm nerves. Pray that you would open ears. Give clarity and uh, help us to worship and praise you with all of our hearts. We love you. In your name, amen. You would be seated. Need to put it down. Jan here? He went out there. Well, hopefully you can still hear me. I wanted to uh, begin this message with uh, thanking BJ um, for his gift in administration (laughs) and uh, the fact that he sat down with Pastor Bob and went through this whole series and and they divided it up. Um, And uh, I originally signed up to preach in April on prayer. And uh, BJ, because he's a wonderful, loving brother <laughs> that cares about people and is very organized, called and said, hey, do you, do you think you can preach on March 20th? And he did tell me the passage, but I didn't focus on the passage. Instead, I just went to see, am I available on the 20th? And uh, so I accepted, obviously. And it wasn't until later that I realized um, I'm preaching on the hardest um, topic and passage that I've, I've ever tried to study for. Um, so, BJ, thank you. Thank you for, for this opportunity to grow. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> um, so, we're going to continue with our sermon series in Matthew, going through the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Those are the only two verses I'm focusing on um, this morning. BJ did assign me to the next section on oaths also, and I went a little rogue. <laughs> I can, I, I, obviously, they could go together, but, but I wasn't able to do it. Um, so, Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, the topic of divorce. The topic of divorce, no doubt, opens up a huge can of worms emotionally, and doctrinally, and I want to start off with saying right at the very beginning, obviously there are probably lots of questions, things that are going through your mind that I am not going to be able to get into or address this morning. Thank you, BJ. Um, What I want to do (laughs) this morning is focus on what Jesus focused on in the Sermon of the Mount. And later on in our series, when we get to Matthew 19, you probably know Jesus goes into a lot more into the topic of divorce. There is many more verses there. So maybe in a year or so, whenever we get to it, some of those questions will be answered in a little bit more depth. There are, um, I'm sure, many of you in here, some of you in here, who have at least gone through a divorce yourself. Um, Some of you who have been children of parents who have gone through a divorce. Um... Maybe you know someone who has been really close to you that has gone through a divorce. And so, no doubt, most of us have been affected in one way.
or another by divorce. And divorce is definitely as common in our day as it was in the time when Jesus was um, preaching the Sermon on the Mount. As I was putting this sermon together and I was wrestling with this topic, I started thinking about my own marriage with Naomi. And I remember that when we first started our marriage, divorce was not an issue. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't think about divorce very much. We just thought about coming together. Um, and so in 2001, that's when Naomi and I met each other. 2002, um, we started dating. And then shortly thereafter, like four months or something, um, we began premarital counseling. And I remember in one of the sessions with Pastor Mike Gower, he said to us, you need to take the D word out of your vocabulary. He said, there's no place for divorce in a Christian marriage. Once a Christian marriage comes together, um, that's it. It's final. God brings together the husband and wife. The two become one flesh, and that's it. And I didn't have a problem with that at that time. I'm like, yeah, no problem. I, I don't need to worry about that. I don't want to divorce my future wife. Anyways, um, I'm in love with her. In fact, what in the world could ever go wrong, of course, right? So we married on May 3rd, 2003. Yep, their, their anniversary is May 4th, I know. I learned that. Yes, it was good. So honeymoon stage lasted for a good while, but around the seventh year, we started looking at each other and wondering what we had gotten ourselves into. Um, believe it or not, Naomi found some things about me um, that she didn't like. I know. Shocker. <laughs> yeah. I try not to bring him home to see my parents too much now. But, um, but then there was also things about Naomi that I obviously didn't like. And, and we began wrestling in our marriage with what is going on here. And it wasn't until that time I started wondering, you know, how certain is the Bible when it talks about divorce? How serious is this issue? Is there anywhere in the Bible that it gives you kind of, it's a, it's a loophole, it's, a, it's an area where it says, yeah, okay, under these reasons, it is okay to get a divorce. And so, it wasn't until I started experiencing rough times in my own marriage around the seventh year that I began having a temptation, if you will, to maybe interpret scripture in a way that would suit my sinful Desires, And it is in that temptation that I can relate to the Pharisees um, where they were at with their teaching um, on divorce in our section. The Pharisees had taken the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, which we're going to look at here in a second. And they had twisted its meaning so much so that they, were, they basically were teaching that all you need to do is get a little piece of paper certificate, issue it to your wife. It's the husband issuing it to his wife, saying, I no longer want to be with you anymore. Here's your certificate of divorce, and you can get out of that divorce. They were divorcing for any reason. I know we've mentioned this multiple times through the series. Poor cooking, lack of sex appeal. Whatever you wanted, you can just issue that certificate of divorce. And what is sad is that I don't think you have to go too far um, to find that kind of teaching in churches today. Um, we don't really hold marriage highly enough in, by and large, in a lot of churches. And I, I think that's evident just based on the fact that, statistically speaking, marriages within the church are about the same as marriages outside the church as far as divorce goes. 
And so Jesus, with his authority and his compassion for the disciples and for you and I, looking over the crowds and he's exposing the Pharisees' false teaching on divorce. And he masterfully realigns their wayward teaching into where God originally taught about marriage and the sanctity of marriage. Please turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Two verses. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus begins his teaching on divorce by saying, it was also said. Here he's not about to quote Old Testament scripture. He's talking about the, the teaching that is going on right now in all the synagogues and what the rabbis were teaching. He's referring to the common teaching of the day um, and what the rabbis had taken the meaning of Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 to mean. If you would, would you turn with me to that passage? Mosaic Law, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, that's the first first husband, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. There's a lot of back and forth. It sounds like there might be a little confusing. But just for clarification on the whole remarriage thing, there is the original husband, issues certificate of divorce. She leaves out of the house, very clear. They're not still living in the same house, leaves. Another man says, hey, I want to marry you, so you're my wife now. He says, I hate you now, um, and issues her a certificate of divorce. Or if he dies, and she's now free. She's either been divorced by him or he has passed away. That original husband cannot then say, hey, I have changed my mind now. I'm in love with you again. Come be my wife. That's what... It's saying there, clearly. So Jesus is sitting on the mountain, teaching his disciples, most likely a mixed group of people, Jews and Gentiles, people that had witnessed Jesus perform miracles, people that had heard Jesus preach in the synagogues, telling them about the kingdom of heaven um, that is at hand, um, the gospel news. And a lot of them had been taught this Mosaic law from the very beginning. Not all of them, right? We have Jews and Gentiles here, Pharisees that are listening And so a lot of them were familiar with this Mosaic Law. And what they had been taught up to this point, by and large, was all they needed to do 
if you wanted to get a divorce, is fill out this certificate, hand it to your wife, and it's over. They had perverted the teaching of God to suit their sinful desires to marry for whatever reason that they wanted to. Okay, the teaching widely stemmed from a rabbi named Hillel. I don't know if I'm saying that right. That might be right. Hillel, we'll go with it. What he did when he took the Mosaic Law and he taught from it was he emphasized the word some out of the Mosaic Law where it says this. It says, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. He took the word some and he interpreted it to mean anything which then makes sense why they would, all, they would need to do is issue the certificate. So he was super liberal, and it says for any reason at all that you can find, if, if you don't want to be married to your wife anymore, go ahead, issue the certificate of divorce. We're still following the Mosaic Law, and everything's hunky-dory. We learn later in Matthew chapter 19 that the Pharisees twisted Scripture so much so that they were saying that Moses even commanded divorce which was a complete lie because as you just read in here, the only command that Jesus, God, gave the people in the law was that the divorced wife could not then again be remarried to that original husband if she has been defiled, if she's been with another man. That's the only command in there. But yet they were being taught, you're commanded to have a divorce. There's another school of thought that was taught. It aligns a little bit more with Jesus' teaching of the time. And it wasn't as popular with the men, of course. But that teacher was uh, Rabbi Shammai. We'll go with that. Um, and he focused on the word indecency. He's not stressing the word some in the same verse. He's stressing the word indecency. So he said indecency is infidelity. It's adultery. Okay, So that would be a lot more in line with where we're going this morning with what Jesus was talking about. So if he has found her to be guilty of adultery, then you can issue a certificate of divorce. But as we know, the popular view of the time was going to be the more liberal view, and so that is what was going on. In fact, they had taken the teaching so out of context that a lot of times, like the husband was beating his wife, wishing her dead. All this was going on. Um, amongst God's people. But what's interesting, when we look at how Jesus preaches during the Sermon of the Mount on divorce, is he doesn't address um, the false teaching that's going on at the time by arguing different word definitions, the word any, or the word indecency. Instead, Jesus exposes the listener's sinful behavior. It's it's as if Jesus took a fillet knife right to the practice of divorce and exposed everything that they were doing as idolatry or adultery. I keep getting those mixed up. <clears throat> Jesus is basically looking at them all in the face saying, you guys are a bunch of idol- or adulterers. <laughs> I did this over and over again on my own too. All right. Jesus tells the people... In Alan's words, you think you're justified because you wrote words on a piece of paper providing whatever lame reason you wanted to divorce your wife just so you could go shack up with another woman. And in doing so, you're committing adultery. You're causing your ex-wife to commit adultery and her future husband 
to commit adultery. You Pharisees think you're pleasing God, but you're completely missing the point. A piece of paper does not justify your sinful acts. In Matthew 19, we're reminded that the very reason that God even allowed or permitted a certificate of divorce to be issued was due to what? Hardness of hearts. So the question then becomes, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to have a hardness of heart? You guys, most of you are smarter than me. You probably know that a hard heart is not a soft heart. This is, this is my train of thought. This is how I decipher things. And the way that our hearts go from being soft to hard is by taking Jesus' teachings and then starting to ignore what we want to ignore out of them and not following God until we become harder and harder to what the truth is. So much so that was going on that, as we saw, their teaching on divorce went all the way off into that, that would be left, left field, right field, that they were, they were just sinning so badly and beating their wives and just wanting out of everything that was going on. So God, in his grace and his mercy, permitted, allowed a certificate of divorce to be issued based and due to their hardness of heart and things that were going on. It's important to understand some of the different mercies that came about because of the issuance of the certificate of divorce. When a certificate of divorce was to be issued based off the law, the certificate had to have on it a justifiable reason for the divorce, which it states is sexual immorality. And there also had to be um, a couple witnesses that could say, yeah, I, I, I know that this is, this is what happened. This is true. The certificate also provided mercy for the person who committed adultery. If you commit adultery during the time of the law, you were to be stoned to death. Okay? So Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary was saying one of the things that um, the law permitted was to, by God's grace, allow for the wife to be divorced without getting stoned to death. Also, because there had to be two witnesses um, identified on the certificate of divorce, it meant that a husband couldn't just make up a reason to divorce his wife. And just think, if the husband was lying about wanting to divorce his wife, and he said, she's been unfaithful to me, might she then have been stoned? And she'd not have been unfaithful. And another thing that the certificate of divorce did was it showed that marriage was holy. You can't just divorce and remarry as often as you want. You can't just say, you know, I'm attracted to this wife, I'm going to divorce her, I'm going to turn around and get a different wife, divorce her, and then go back to the original wife that I had. Because no, you can't do that. So God permitted the certificate of divorce under Moses as a means of mercy to those who were victimized by evil spouses and as a way of reminder of the sanctity of marriage. So from the time of Moses' day all the way to our time now, God has not changed 
his view of marriage. The calling is still the same. However, we have in many ways, and so did the Pharisees at the time that Jesus is preaching here, we whittled down the truth to fit our sinful desires. And Jesus is wanting to realign them and us with marriage and divorce and what's going on with all that. When the Pharisees tried to trick Jesus in chapter 19 by asking him if it was lawful for divorce, Jesus didn't get into a debate with them. Obviously, Jesus was wise. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. And if you think about the situation, they're in Perea. Perea was governed by Herod. Herod was the one that beheaded John the Baptist. And so the Pharisees, they're like snakes, right? So they come up there and they're trying to trick Jesus. They want to put him in a place where they're going to take Jesus' life, haul him off from out of there. And so they're trying to, trying to say, were, were people ever permitted to get a divorce? And so what does Jesus do? Jesus bypasses everything that they want to argue about and goes right back to Scripture. He goes to Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And this kind of, it just gets me excited, and I get chilled when I think about it, when I picture like those Pharisees sitting right there in front of them thinking that they're going to take on Jesus. It's as if Jesus just slaps them right across the face, and he's like, don't patronize me. I wrote the book. <laughs> you know? So who do you think you are to think that you have any right to pervert any of my word? Only by my mercy did I even allow a certificate to be presented in the first place. And even that, you twisted. Marriage is much more than a thing. It is a design of God the Father. It's two becoming one flesh. The Pharisees couldn't see the forest for the trees. Marriage is not something that we try to get out of. It's designed to be so much more. When Adam was there and then God made Eve to be with Adam, she was a helper. Adam was supposed to love Eve like he loves himself. That's how we're supposed to be right now in our marriages. We're supposed to be giving to one another selflessly. Marriage is a covenant. It's a union between one man and one woman brought together by God and sealed by a promise. The scripture is clear that God brought our marriages together. It says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is to be saved at all costs. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, redirects the disciples' focus to the sanctity of marriage. God would that no one ever get a divorce. Malachi 2.16 makes it clear that God hates divorce. It's important for us to realize that God hasn't changed this view throughout all time. I know I already mentioned that, but God does not change. The calling on marriage, the sanctity of marriage has not changed one bit. Please turn with me to Ephesians 5. We're going to read what we, what we did earlier, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, 
his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, a husband should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is our standard for marriage. This was the standard for marriage during the Mosaic Law. This was the standard for marriage when Adam and Eve came together. And, and as you know, as, as we've experienced, most, so many of you have been married longer than I have. Um, marriage is a blessing. There are so many different blessings that come from this when we're loving our husbands and wives the way that Ephesians 5 is talking about. Marriage is procreation. Marriage gives pleasure. Marriage protects the sexual purity of each other. Marriage gives provision. And marriage gives us our greatest friend. Um, I had the opportunity um, of listening to Phil give his testimony at the men's dinner um, this last time. And it's 60 years, right? May 4th. May 4th. This year they're going to have been married for 60 years, which is... Amazing. And as Phil was talking, you could just see his face just beaming with joy. I mean, like, it was like primarily talking about stories that the two of them, there's some good stories, of, of the two of them. And I was just sitting there, and I was like, man, I want my marriage to grow in love, in friendship like that. I want to be talking about my wife like that and loving her. But the ultimate blessing of marriage is that it serves as a testimony for God's love and faithfulness to his bride, which is the church. Right? We just read that in Ephesians 5. Most of us has heard, have heard that so many different times. It talks about, it says, this mystery is profound. Marriage is profound, and it's saying that it's a picture of Christ in the church. And God promises that he's never going to leave or forsake his church. It is good news for all of us. If you're chosen by God, if you're his bride, he's not going to ever leave us. Though we continually sin every day against him, he's forgiving and just and loving and will always remember us as bride. We see this picture um, throughout the book of Hosea and even on grounds of adultery idolatry in that situation. He never divorced. So how should God's faithfulness to us impact our understanding on divorce? 
based off of what I just said and what we just read, you might think that, well, well, that leaves no grounds anywhere for divorce. God never leaves us. We should never leave our spouse. It's kind of confusing when you look at verse 32 in Matthew. Right? It says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Okay, except. This verse on face value, and along with uh, the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy, appears that there's an exception when there's sexual immorality. So what is what is going on here? How are we supposed to interpret this? And it's right now where I'm going to make a little side step and say that I'm going to mention three different schools of thought and interpretation when it comes to divorce and remarriage. And I'm not going to go into them very much. I'm going to talk a little bit about one of them. But there's three different positions, that, um, by and large, that theologians, different teachers, um, will teach today regarding the Bible. And I've heard it described as this, the yes-yes position, the yes-no position, and the no-no position. All right, so the yes-yes position is pretty obvious. Um, someone believe, Those people believe that the Bible says that, yes, there are times based on sexual immorality some of them would also say if one of your, uh, uh, one of the two of the, the spouse, spouses aren't Christians, that in those certain cases, under certain circumstances, that yes, you can get a divorce if you meet that criteria. And then yes, you can remarry. Let you guess what the yes-no position is. Yes, <laughs> there are times where you can divorce if sexual immorality ha- comes into play. But no, you cannot remarry. And then the no-no position is no, you can never get a divorce, and no, you can never remarry. These three areas are most likely going to be addressed more in Matthew chapter 19. Now, yes, I know I might have to preach that sermon too, so I'm setting it up. But if not, then someone else, <laughs> someone else <laughs> might have to go into that. Um, there's some different points, though, that I just want to comment on. I got four different ones, uh, just with all those different things in your mind. First of all, we should not choose which position we are going to agree with based off of our emotions, just really quickly, like, yes, I, you know what, the yes, yes sounds the best, and so I want to be part of that position. Um, we need to care deeply about what the Bible is talking about here when it comes to marriage and divorce because that picture is all over the Bible and it is, it is everywhere and we need to care deeply about it. Marriage is important to God and it's important to us. Secondly, there's godly people on all three sides of this issue. Even the leadership at, at this church I talked with with them, and, and their views aren't necessarily exactly aligned with one another, which should be looked at in some ways as a strength. 
okay? We're all in different um, processes of sanctification. We all are trying to wrestle and interpret Scripture in, in different areas. But there is a love between the leadership. There is a love between... Man, I, I couldn't believe it. Like I was, I was reading different people. Martin Lloyd-Jones, John Piper, John MacArthur... I looked at a number of different commentaries as I'm reading about it, and some of them I was like, wow, so-and-so's a yes-yes, but so-and-so's a no-no, but they'd shake hands and both preach together at the same conference. And they would recommend each other for different people that are in their congregations to go and learn from them. Thirdly, if you have been divorced, um, as as I'm going to mention again later, God is gracious to forgive. Um, it might be interpreted in, in your sense that it, it was lawful. It was okay to divorce in your certain situation. Maybe that is where your interpretation is. Um, maybe, though, you think, you know what, since then I have been convicted of adultery. I don't think I was doing what God wanted me to do or what the scriptures were saying when I divorced or when I remarried. Divorce is not an unforgivable sin. God is gracious and just to forgive, and he forgives. And finally, the other side note, bullet point that I wanted to make was, if you determine that you're in a situation of adultery when you've divorced and remarried or whatever your situation is, then yeah, you need to repent. You need to come to God, confess what's happened, and ask for his forgiveness, and then... Sin no more. Go and sin no more. Realign yourself to the teaching of God. And what that does not mean is that you get a divorce with your current spouse and try to go back to your original spouse or be single for the rest of your life. God can bless abundantly a marriage that might have begun in sin. He does that with me, with everyone else, every day when I sin on a number of different issues. Now, the no-no position. Okay, now I need to say this also. I don't know for sure which position I believe 100% on either. Um, I'm learning. I am growing in this. I lean a little bit more towards the no-no position right now, but I was swayed quite a bit depending on who I was reading and studying and as I was praying and really thinking about this issue, I'm not 100% certain. But I wanted to do a summary of the no-no position for two different reasons. One reason is because on face value, it appears in the text that we're using in 31 and 32 that there is an option for divorce, that divorce is permitted under certain circumstances. But it does not seem like it would go along with a, no, you could never get a divorce. The other reason is because, clearly, it holds a high view of marriage. It says, no, you can't just get a divorce. Marriage is holy. And so that's that's the other reason I figured if if we're going to look at the holiness of marriage also, um, let's let's talk a little bit about the no-no position. To understand this argument, we need to look at the word sexual immorality in verse 32. So let's read our passage again, and I'll try to, try to unpack it a little bit. 
It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the, the big question here is, what's going on with that word sexual immorality? I guess it's two different words. Um, the Greek word for that word is pornea. Okay? Pornea is, can be defined in kind of a broad context, but here is specifically fornication. So you might ask yourself, um, so, okay, so the word pornea is used here. Is there a Greek word for adultery? Is there a Greek word that's specifically adultery that could have been used here but wasn't used here? And the answer is yes. The word is moikia. I think that's how you say it. Not too sure. Um, But that's specific. So then you might ask the question, so why, why not use the word for adultery instead of pornea? Um, you would note that if, if you're married and one, one of the two of the spouses is unfaithful, that would be adultery, not fornication. Fornication would be if they weren't married and then one of them is unfaithful. So why in the world are we using the word pornea? Why is Matthew using the word pornea here um, instead of moikia? And I think it would help to understand this if we go to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, the word betrothed, It's a big word right there, betrothed, to Joseph, before they came together. That's another area we'd circle, came together so they had not consummated their relationship, marriage yet. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her, what's the word used? Husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to... Divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary. Now, the ESV translation does have the word as, some do not, which helps stress the meaning a little bit more there, as Steve Schlert helped me out with. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So what what is happening here? We got Mary, who's supposed to be the wife. We got Joseph, called a husband. Joseph, rightly so, thinks Mary's been unfaithful because she's pregnant. And so Joseph, it says, being a righteous man, an upright man, Resolved to divorce her quietly. Divorce her. They weren't married, but they were betrothed. But yet they're a husband and wife and they're getting a divorce. And to understand it would 
mean that we need to understand a little bit more about their culture and what it meant to be betrothed. Basically, in that time, and I don't know if it's still this way today, but in the Jewish culture, when they were betrothed, it's basically the same um, binding agreement as we would call marriage today. Minus the consummation of the marriage. So in every way, they've made an agreement. They're going to get married. They're treating each other as a spouse. But they haven't come together yet. So therefore, since it appeared, we know that it was the uh, Jesus inside Mary. Therefore, since it appeared that Mary had been unfaithful, um, in that situation, she had not committed adultery. She had committed fornication. So if we were to try to understand this verse a little bit better in our context and what we think of as marriage, it might help a little bit more in verse 32 to take out that whole accept clause so that it would read something like this. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So to put it bluntly, the no-no position would say, based on that, no, you could never get a divorce, and no, you cannot remarry. But as I mentioned, I don't know for sure where I land on it, and it's going to go into more detail when we get to Matthew 19, but I do want to go back then to Jesus' focus in the Sermon of the Mount, and that is basically a realignment of their view and their practice and how it had been perverted from the original law um, Jesus wanted to expose the people's evil practice of divorce and remind them of the severity of divorce. That is something that we can definitely take away, that marriage is holy. Marriage is a representation of Christ's love for the church. And marriage is a blessing. It's not something that we try to get out of. It is something that we try to keep together at all costs. I never actually opened the Bible when I was going through my seventh year of marriage with Naomi to try to figure out, is there any clause here? Can I actually get a divorce? I wasn't that far along, but boy, I was sure struggling. I was sure wondering, man, what, what is going on here? I knew, though, that God is sovereign, that God did bring us together, that God is holy and right, and he would uphold everything that his word said it would uphold, and that if he really did bring about my marriage, if he really did give me Naomi and Naomi me, that it was for a reason, that it was a blessing, and that it was for also my enjoyment. And that is true for everyone in all marriages. Naomi and I, at that time, um, especially when we're definitely not perfect now. There's better days and worse days, but it has progressed. It has been a blessing. Naomi and I weren't treating each other like we should have been in the Ephesians 5 sort of way. And we needed to come together and confess to one another sins that were going on in our own lives. I, I became more selfish. My heart became harder, right, to the word. And so I started looking at myself instead of, realizing that marriage was first about God and secondly about Naomi. And when God gets the glory, when he's put first, we get the joy. And so 
Naomi and I were saved because of God. We were saved because of his word. Look at her now. She's so much hotter than me. Um, and, and I am so thankful for that. Um, I'm so thankful for the children that we have. And I just, we're going we're gonna to go right into communion right now. I just want to look out over all of you. And, I, and I'm, I'm amazed by some of the marriages that have been going on so long in our church. And I'm just, you don't know what kind of witness you are to a young marriage like mine. Is it 13 years or something coming up? Yeah, 13. 13 years we've been married. And when I look at a marriage that's almost been around for 65 years. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought they got the trophy. Okay, so it's okay. Okay, so we got 60 and 65 years going on with marriages over there. It is. It is something that is strengthening younger marriages in this church. Okay. And, and, it, and it is definitely a, a huge witness. And I, and I want to thank you. I want to thank you for that. And, and realize, realize what you're doing. So, can ushers please come forward for communion now and we'll sing and conclude.
beautiful song. God loves, God loves us. I don't know why. <laughs> God, God loves us so much, and He loves you no matter what you've gone through. I often talk with people out on the street that I'm dealing with in my job, and I know they're thinking in their mind, there's, there's no way. And then I say, you know, 13 books in the New Testament were written by a guy that used to go around killing Christians. And I, have to, I, I don't know, and I don't want to know. I don't whatever know who's been divorced in here, what's gone on, or who, or whatever place your heart is with it. If you're having trouble like me, like I, I was having trouble um, with one of my closest friends who got a divorce, and how, how do I love? How do I love him? And the answer is to love him the way that that Jesus loves him. We can, we can hold fast to God's truth. He will never leave us or forsake us. Um, we are his, his bride. Romans 8.38 um, is a classic verse to, to think about. Basically the fact that you're safe. You're safe. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The only reason for that is because Jesus paid the price. It was his body that was broken and his blood that was poured out for us. And it is sufficient. It's sufficient for adultery. It's sufficient for divorce. It's sufficient for murder. It's sufficient. We need to repent, realize, and recognize when we veered off. Our hearts are hard. They need to be softened by the word. But come before him. You know, confess. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. We're, we're still sinning. We need him every day. And so, so Jesus is with his disciples. He tells us to do this, to remember him, and I'm glad he does. Every Sunday we do this. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup symbolizing his blood. He says, this cup is the new covenant, new promise in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I wanted to close um, with a picture of the marriage supper in Revelation. It says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb, which is Jesus, has come. And His bride, which is us, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen 
is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Jesus' words are true, and they are perfect, and we can trust them. Let's pray. God, thank you for your faithfulness. I ask, God, that you would grow seeds that were planted in us today, in me, all of us, and make us more like you. Lord, to be salt of the earth, a city on a hill. We need you, Jesus, and so does the rest of the world. Please work in us, refine us, make us more like you. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen.